Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. Hello, welcome everyone. This is the American Reformer Podcast, and I am Ben Dunson, the Editor-in-Chief of American Reformer, and I have with me, as usual, Josh Avatoy, who is the Executive Director of American Reformer. Uh, this week, we are going to give you a coronation special. Uh, King Charles III now has been, um, has officially uh, become King of England, and uh, there was a lot of ceremony uh, about that over the weekend. We are the, the former colonists, so I suppose uh, we, we are supposed to recoil in horror as we see um, all the pomp and circumstance of the king. Um, maybe I'm not a very good, uh, a very good American rebel. Um, I, I have a, a certain soft spot in my heart for, for all of that pomp. And circumstance. I'm a, a bit of an Anglophile, and um, even though I probably wouldn't really want to live under that arrangement, I, I still um, I still have this uh, this fondness for it in a way. Um, I'm probably in the minority of our listeners. I, I also have a bit of a soft spot for Charles himself. I don't really imagine he's going to be a particularly uh, good Christian king, um, but I do. Uh, I, I do appreciate his his work in the the, the realms of architecture, in particular, uh, also uh, style. Um, in, in a lot of ways, he's a he's, he's quite the uh, the uh, dapper uh, gentleman. And um, despite the fact that if you dress like that uh, today and you're not a king, uh, you tend to get weird looks, uh, like I do when I go to church. Uh, but uh, he, he's, he's also a, a patron of classical architecture, and uh, he's done a lot of really good work in that area. So I do have a, a certain soft spot for him. Uh, Josh, I, I get the feeling that, uh, that that might not be quite the case uh, with you. <laughs> I, don't, I don't hate Charles, Ben. I just don't think about him very much, you know? Um, I, I mean, I'm, you know, uh, we're, we're a republic. We don't have... Kings who put on special outfits and parade around with all this pomp and circumstance. We, um, you know, our government is um, matter of fact. We take care of our issues and then we, we uh, go home to our farms. Uh, that's the American way. Um, now, I, I, uh, I, but, you know, with all that said, um, I saw a little bit of the ceremony and I think that my. My, my instinctual response, and it is a beautiful ceremony, and there's a lot of scripture in it and a lot of like Christian tradition, but in watching all of this, I thought, man, if I were an Englishman, I think, I think this would radicalize me. I think this would make me say, look at what we've lost and how can we reclaim it? <laughs> right. Yeah, well, there's, there's a, a lot... Uh, a lot that has has been lost, uh, and and not really even from that far back in England's past. Yeah, you, yeah. I mean, think about even just just hit, comparing Charles to to his mother, to Queen Elizabeth. Um, you know, I I would often hear her speak about about God and about Scripture and about 
responsibility uh, as queen, things like that. Very, very moving. Um, and as far as I could tell, uh, it seemed to be very genuine, genuine Christian uh, sentiment, uh, even, you know, talking about the gospel in uh, in clear ways. It, it doesn't seem to be at all the case with Charles. He, he doesn't seem to be interested in that at all. He seems to be a, a pretty modern um, relativist when it comes to religion. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm, I mean, in various outlets, you know, he's uh, he tends to toe the line with sort of um, elite mainstream sensibilities on cutting edge political issues. Right. So climate change and, you know, ending world hunger and seeking world peace and all of this. He's a very, you know, he has very conventional sensibilities on all of these pressing contemporary issues. I wouldn't expect him to be a bulwark um, on, uh, you know, against the moral revolution, for example, uh, really whatsoever. I mean, it, you know, yeah. So, so I guess, but as I, as I looked at the, the ceremony in all of its context, the thing that really struck me was um, just the, the disparity between the grandiosity of the coronation itself and then the reality of modern Britain. I mean, you've got, I mean, one, the, the monarchy is, um, it, it's like this vestigial organ, right? It doesn't have any um, power or substance to it. It's purely sort of a, a figurehead position. Um, so so the, there's no political potency to it. Um, but then I, I think kind of combine that with the moral decay of the Church of England, right? I mean, this is the church. Charles takes an oath to protect this church. This is the church just started recognizing gay marriage, you know, within the last month. Um, and, uh, you know, and then, and then, you know, combine that with the political situation in England, um, this is a country that has almost de facto open borders. Um, crime rates are rising in England. Uh, it's it's Tories. It's political leadership class have been, you know, very working very hard to transform England into a sort of, you know, like a lot of other places like the states into sort of just a a multicultural state that has turned its back on its history and tradition, and. I guess we should be grateful that the coronation still happens and still has some Bible verses in it. But the, the contrast between that ceremony and then the political reality is just, is jarring. And that's sort of why I say, if I were, if I were like a red blooded Englishman watching that, I, I just, I would be, I would be furious. I would, I would, I would be radicalized. I would want to, um, I would want to fall in line, you know, behind Prince William at the head of an army and march on London and and dissolve Parliament and set everything right in the land. <laughs> it, it's, um, it's. I don't think there yeah. are very many red-blooded Englishmen like that left. Um, I think uh, maybe all five of them will be radicalized by this. I mean, I, I think um, whether there might be some left, uh, I think the uh, the number of evangelical Christians in in Britain now is is somewhere like one or two percent, um, m- maybe three. Uh, it's it's vanishingly small. Um, yeah, I mean, I- establishment um, at least in the English context now has has not uh, at least as it is now is not very effective uh, for sure. Um, uh, 
it's not it's not doing much anyway other than this kind of yeah. radically relativistic um basically syncretistic church at this point right right that's a, that's actually in uh, sort of a developing schism with the global anglican church uh you know so they the this is the empire that took christianity in a lot of cases to many parts of the world and you know it's it's uh, ecclesiological descendants have you know uh, remained more faithful than the Church of England, right? So now they're a, um, you know, the the Anglican Church in Africa and other parts of the world is is rebuking the Church of England and kind of you know has has it right and has remained faithful while the parent has uh, has drifted. Um, yeah, and then you know, it, it, like all of this, I, I said something about this on Twitter, but. You know, it, it, it to me it reminds me of sort of like uh, you know if you read Tolkien and sorry for the Tolkien reference, <laughs> but you, you know it's sort of like the the impotence of the late stewards of Gondor kind of combined with the moral decay of Numenor, right? Like it's England was a great country. I mean, it it really was. It produced such wonderful, virtuous people. I mean, it it shaped the globe that we all live in essentially. I mean, they forged. A lot of the basis of the international order. They at one point controlled most of the seas on the globe. Um, their language has become the lingua franca of the globe. Um, you know, and like just this make. I mean, a magnificent empire, and and really in a lot of ways, I mean, I would say one of the most humane global empires that ever existed. Oh yeah, right. Definitely. I mean, they were they were um, not perfect, but very humanitarian, really wanted to, I mean, in a lot of cases, you know, they weren't merely exploiting local populations, but they actually wanted to help them become civilized. They wanted to raise them up from their, uh, the state that they found them in, which they've, they viewed, again, a deeply human instinct. They didn't, when they went to a, a nation that was less developed Unlike a modern person, their instinct wasn't, oh, let's let this population, this primitive people remain in their current condition. And, you know, we can kind of observe them as a curiosity as if they were, you know, animals in a zoo. But the English people would go to a nation that they were colonizing and they would say, these people are living in a state of savagery. This is actually beneath their station, beneath their dignity as human beings. And we want to help them. We want to help raise them up. Um, kind of the, the classic yeah. example of that is uh, is in India with um, Suti, the, um, S-U-T-T-E-E, the, the the practice where when the when um, a wife's husband had died and he would be burned up on the funeral pyre and you know and she'd throw herself on the on the fire that was the, that was expected of her as a, a loyal wife and the British um, they they banned that. You know, like they they weren't just going to sit back and and um, and allow something that they saw to be an obvious moral evil. Yeah, um, yeah I mean the, the the colonial thing. It's 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 you're not allowed to say this today, but um, like you said, there there were some excesses. There were some instances. I mean, where I mean, this is no different than any form of human government. People do bad things, no matter what your form of government is, no matter where it is. But almost across the board in the places where they colonized things got better for the people 
in those countries. And, and it's, it's pretty obvious because as soon as the British left in most of those countries, things almost instantly devolved into anarchy, civil war, savagery, um, tribal warfare, uh, they, they did so much good in those nations. There's a, there's a great book on this, um, Bruce Gilley. There's a lot of controversy about this recently, but he's a professor at Portland State, and people were trying to cancel him, get him fired, get his books banned, all these things. But he wrote this book uh, on – well, he wrote an article on German colonialism, and then he wrote a book on uh, a man named Alan Burns, who uh, was uh, a colonial administrator in Africa – and, and the book's called The Last Imperialist. It's a, it's a really, really good book. Uh, and he's showing all of the good that Burns did in these nations. And, and he, was, he was devoted to the people that he was serving. Um, and every single time when, when Britain left those nations, they just, they collapsed. And even, even a, a good number of the people in those nations recognized that and, um, and, uh, and lamented that fact. So, no, you're exactly right. I mean, Britain in the past was a was a force for much good in the world, uh, and it's it's pretty sad to see where things stand now. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah. I, so, so this is this is my my overall reaction, and I'm, I'm sorry to rain on the coronation parade. I just. <laughs> um, I have a I have a, a lot of difficulty appreciating the the beauty of the ceremony or whatever else without having all of this background come to mind. Um, you know the the other the other reaction I've seen quite a bit to the coronation um, is discourse around you know establishment and what the coronation means about establishment. Um, you know some have said. You know, I, I think you could take this argument two ways. Some have said, like, it's great that Britain still has this ceremony. It's great that, you know, the scriptures read in public ceremonies, right? Even if the, nobody believes it anymore and it's lost all meaning, um, there's still some salutary effect to having uh, this sort of liturgy as part of your public ceremonies. While others, um, our friend Andrew Walker, uh, commented that you know that that the uh, you know that this this ceremony is sort of an indication that establishment doesn't work right. I mean they've they've got all the formalities in place and those have failed to um, really abate the the forces of uh, secularization in Britain. Um, ben, do you have a do you have a do you have a view on um, I guess establishment as embodied by the coronation and what does this tell us about establishment writ large? You know, something that just came to mind as you were, you were talking was, um, was the example of, of old Testament Israel. And, uh, this is not an exact parallel cause it's not really about establishment and, and I'm not arguing for, um, reproduction of, of old Testament Israel, but you know, you know how often in the prophets you have, God coming to the people and, and saying, you know, I despise your feasts. I despise your worship and all that. And, um, and that was the very, the very worship that the law commanded, but it had become empty and, and the people's hearts were turned away from God. They were going through the motions outwardly, but their hearts were, were 
completely turned from God. And, and, and there's that such strong language about just despising those, those feasts, but it wasn't, it wasn't the, the worship itself. That was the problem. God commanded that worship. It was, it was the state of the people and the state of their hearts. And, and so I, I think with, with something like establishment, and of course, there's there's different forms of establishment. I mean, I think the 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 form that's taken in England, I'm I'm less, um, I, you know, I'd be less uh, pleased with that. There's there's forms of establishment that you see in in kind of the city states of of the Reformation, where there was actually a pretty clear distinction between the the political realm and the and the church, even though they were in in a kind of cooperation. I'm in principle, more comfortable with that. Although I don't, I don't think that's necessary to reproduce that. Um, but the, the form it's taken in England is, is, is a little bit different, but that said, I, I don't really see how you can say that the fact that it's empty now proves anything about the actual validity any more than you could say that the prophets denouncing Israel's false worship, uh, was, were, were somehow denouncing God's law itself. You know, how absurd would that be to, to say something like that? So that's just something that came to mind as you were talking. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, it's, it's sort of tough. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know that we can make conclusions about the prudence of establishment from like the fact of England's existence. I mean, it's like, you know, we've got modern Western democracies that have no establishment that have drifted into moral insanity. We've got democracies with establishment that have drifted into moral insanity. It, it seems to me that it's not, um, and, and this observation sort of cuts both ways in the debate. I, yeah. I think we have to conclude establishment is clearly not a sufficient condition to maintain like sort of national faithfulness. Clearly we've got to conclude that. Yeah. Um, but but maybe even more so. I, I mean, it, I I think it's is it really a necessary condition? Um, I don't think so. Um, the the substance of the the virtue and faithfulness of the people is 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 far more important. And and we know from even our own history that um, that we can have those conditions without a formal established arrangement. And uh, and so perhaps to some extent, you know. We talk a lot about establishment at American Reformer and another, uh, you know, a lot of our writers um, explore the topic quite a bit, but perhaps to some extent it's a bit of a, a red herring uh, simply because it's not, you know, causally it's not going to drive uh, the kind of change that, that we need by itself. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the substance of the, of the politics and really just what's, the, what's in people's hearts it's driven by a lot, not just establishment. Um, yeah, no, I think that's that's exactly right. It, it goes both ways. Um, establishment is not going to be, you know, the, the one necessary thing that if you don't have it, you can't have a, a good political arrangement. Um, but at the same time, it's it's not um, it, it's not such that if you have it, um, you will. Um, or, or yeah, if you have it, then then you're going to have you know necessarily national flourishing. I mean, I would rather live in America today with all our problems than I would England. Despite how much I, I love England, um, I 
things are still better here than they are there. Um, mm-hmm. when we're talking about uh, basic issues of justice and and things like that. And and in the past, you know, I still think I'd rather have been in America without establishment than in England with it, even when it was more uh, faithful. Um, so it's not the silver bullet, certainly. I, I but I also don't I don't think that establishment means you have an illegitimate form of government either. I think I think some some in the the evangelical world would probably argue that that establishment is is inherently evil, and um, I, I find that to be a strange argument uh, because it's it's not been so so horrible in the past. Um, so, yeah, and and um, yeah, there's there's so much to that, like you know, establishment also is a, it's sort of a complex bundle of policies. And, you know, some of those may be more objectionable than others, you know? Um, So, so like, and then when we also, when we talk about establishment, sometimes people have in mind uh, the way that word has been uh, broadened over time to kind of include even arrangements where, I guess I'd say religiously informed moral impulses shape the laws of a country um, or, you know, any, any arrangement where you have public prayer or the 10 commandments posted and things like that. Um, in the American context, uh, the ACLU would certainly say that's establishment. And so, you know, we, we, um, you know, there's quite a bit of space between America, where America is today and then a very formal establishment such as what, you know, England had in the 1600s. And uh, we're often, when we critique it, we're not being particularly precise about sort of what type of establishment are in, are in the sites. Um, and even, you know, even American establishment was quite different. You know, it looks a lot different when your established church is a congregationalist church, for example, like it was in many of the New England states. Um, because in such a case, you don't have a um, unified church hierarchy that is, you know, licensing preachers and making these, you know, kind of global um, determinations, but rather, you know, you've got a, uh, you've got a church that looks a lot more like a republic. It's a loose confederation of different local congregationalist churches. And so the way that that church group has to interact with the government is, is quite a bit different. Um, Anyways. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, this, I think... this get. Oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Well, I, was, I mean, this gets us into some of the the things that have been swirling around our world. Uh, some of the the debates in in different uh, Baptist circles about establishment lately, and um, you know, I was thinking like, I'm, and and uh, a kind of Protestant old Protestant view where the church and the state are separate, but they they are seen as complementary. I think I'm I'm pretty comfortable with that. And I think that could take a variety of forms. I think that could take a different form in America. I think it has taken a different form in America than it did in the, the Protestant city-states. But I think that that was good, like seeing, seeing harmony between the two realms, not the kind of Jeffersonian uh, radical separation. Um, and and that's, that's been what's interesting to me, is that some of the people that are talking about 
their their fears of merging church and state, um, their their fears about establishment, uh, they they seem to have accepted the, the sort of post post World War II radical secular consensus to where church and state have to be separate in the sense of being um, like completely sealed off from each other mm-hmm. to where there's not, it's not a sense of these are both divine realms that are meant to be working towards good. And the, the state can do things that are supportive of the church, or at the very least don't put obstacles in the way of, of the church. And, and I mean, this hasn't been, this hasn't been uncommon in America's history. We still have, tax exemptions for for churches uh, today and i mean until fairly recently pastors could opt out of social security and things like that and so there there were ways in which the state was doing things that were beneficial for churches and for clergy that they're not in any way trying to dictate the church's doctrine which I, I think would be wrong. They're not, um, but at the same time, they're also not, um, uh, you know, saying that these two things can have nothing to do with each other. We, we, we have to be radically neutral with regard to the church. If we even do anything that would be good for the church, then we've somehow crossed the line. Um, that that's, that's normal in America's history. And, um, and uh, I think that's, that's good. But, but a lot of Christians really, struggle with that today because they've they the air they breathe is just this radical secularism um even the idea of cooperation is anathema to them mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah that's i i think that's right um so um hey maybe shifting gears to a final point and i'm sorry i've got a lot to complain about with this uh coronation but uh, Al Mohler, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, and also an Anglophile like yourself, Ben, um, he had a really interesting take on the briefing that came out on Monday uh, going over the coronation. He pointed out, and I guess we should have known this, I, it didn't really strike me at the time when I saw the coverage of the coronation on Saturday, but um, King George is divorced. Uh, he actually struck up his relationship with uh, the the current queen while he was married to Princess Diana, and um, and this is sort of it's scandalous enough. Um, but then when you actually look at English history, it's it's actually kind of crazy. So, you know, they've had I, I think it was King Edward in the '30s was. Um, wanted to marry an American woman and it would have been a, a, a remarriage uh, for her. And the English church did not permit it. They refused to give their blessing. And as a result, he was ineligible to take the crown. Yeah. Um, so that was just, you know, uh, 90 years ago. And, and from, from then until today, this, this fact wasn't even commented on in the coronation. I mean, nobody really noticed it at all, but you know, we've got, here we've got King George, um, you know, really entering a marriage that that the church historically would not have approved of, and uh, it's kind of a, you know, 
I mean, it, it is, it should be viewed as a, a bit of a milestone, um, but kind of passed without any comment. Yeah, I suppose when you have a church that approves gay marriage, uh, so-called, hardly going to be surprised that that they're even weaker on on divorce, um, and that that's not really going to going to figure into it at all. But yeah, no, that's yeah. true. I mean, just so many ways in which the ceremony, formally speaking, is is saying right things and good things, and yet it's just so emptied of of the the moral truth that once stood underneath it yeah yeah no it no it is it is um is a a sad reality i mean that's not even something that figures into people's thinking at all that's just so common to them that they don't even they don't even take a second thought about it well i'm i'm uh I don't have a lot more to say about this. I think I'll just, you know, my, my, my concluding thoughts here, are, you know, I hope that, I hope that a member, maybe a young male member, member of the Royal family heard the scripture that was read in this beautiful ceremony and was pricked in their conscience and inspired to, uh, at some point, uh, when they ascend and get the crown to, uh, you know, dissolve parliament and, uh, reconstitute the Anglican church <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, set everything right in merry old England. Yeah, uh, that that that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah, maybe 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 they will they'll take those vows that they made to God seriously, and uh, yes. you never know what God God could do with that um, someday. Um, I I think we both say that we do hope God will indeed save the king, and indeed. Uh, and uh, and that he could do good in in faithfulness uh, to to the Lord. Absolutely. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in, for listening to our our take on the coronation. Um, please make sure to follow us online. You can follow us on Twitter at, um, well, what what is our Twitter handle? I'm blanking out. It's AMREF. Is that right? No, AMREFORMER. There we go. AMREFORMER. Uh, yeah, AMREFORMER is our Twitter handle. And uh, you can also follow us on Facebook. You can... You can get access to the podcast on um, Apple and Podbeam and Spotify. Please take a, a moment to, to leave a rating for us. Um, if you've enjoyed the show, that helps us get this show out to more people. And until next time, we will see you guys later. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer Podcast. Make sure to visit us online at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at AMReformer. <laughs>